0: Chapter 10 of the book of Acts begins, There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band. This is not music of the band called the Italian band. He's in Caesarea. And what we're going to do is we're going to watch Peter now come in contact with this Gentile. Chapter 9 and 10 are the only missionary endeavors of Peter that we actually have in the book of Acts. We're going to, chapter 13, move into the life of Paul, and that's where we'll be through the rest of the book of Acts. Peter had gone to Samaria with John to see, in fact, if they were believing, if they had received Christ, and they prayed for them to, read the, uh, to receive the Spirit. Then, of course, they went back to the church in Jerusalem and reported those things because the church in Jerusalem trusted Peter and John, and they said, if these guys says what's going on there is kosher, it's kosher. They kind of tolerated the Samaritans but didn't want much to do with them. And considered them heretics. The Samaritans were born half-breeds of Jews and the people the Assyrians brought into the land— very strange group of people. And they, uh, they held to the first five books of Moses, but they didn't hold too much after that. So there was kind of a connection. And Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem to you're endued with power. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, where we're going to f- follow, you know, we did last week, Lydda and Joppa, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth and it's this evening really one of the most important junctures if not the most important juncture in the book of Acts because this is where the door to the Gentile world swings open this is why we're sitting here tonight studying the scripture because of what takes place here Gentiles had been affected. Philip talked to the Ethiopian eunuch. But the, the gospel, in, to a large degree, those who were in Asia turned away. It seemed to move towards Europe through Paul, across the ocean to us, South America. It's gone to Red China and the Muslim world and has just about circumvented the globe in a very remarkable way. But this is where the door to the Gentiles opens up. Now, God is working on Peter. Peter, in some ways, is far more prejudiced than Paul. Paul, though he brags about being of the tribe of Benjamin, a Jew of the Jews, circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and so forth, because he's a Hellenist, God will use that, and Paul will be sent to the Gentiles. When Paul gets saved, remember the beginning of chapter 9... He, he says, "Who are you, Lord?" He said, "I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting." And Paul just says, "What do you want me to do?" In this chapter, Peter says three times, "Not so, Lord." You know, Paul just said, "What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go?" So Peter, God's wearing him down. Peter has to do, it seems, everything three times. You know, for some reason, to get it right. And he's he's he you know he woke him up three times at Gethsemane. You just go through the things with Peter. And Peter now is in the house of Simon the Tanner, the end of chapter 9, which in itself is stepping across a line because the Jews despised tanners because they worked with dead bodies, uh, animals to get the skins. And their tradition said that a tanner couldn't live within 50 paces of a city wall. They had to be outside the city wall, Their tradition said if a young girl got married and found out after the wedding that she had married a tanner, that the wedding was automatically annulled and not in in effect. Uh, The Jews had the right of the Leverite marriage. If if a man died and left a wife without children because they were concerned about inheritance and, and land and so forth, that the man's brother then would take the wife. But... If your husband died and the brother was a tanner, she wasn't bound to that at all. It was all out the window. So Peter has stepped across some lines to be here in the house of Simon the tanner. No doubt he's looking at the wineskins hanging there thinking about when Jesus said you can't put new wine in old skins. And God's going to use that. And And he's here at this house of Simon the tanner and it takes us then to Caesarea, which is about 30 miles up the coast from Joppa. It's about 75 miles northwest of Jerusalem, 70 miles. But it's about 30 miles in a straight line from Joppa up the coast, which is nothing to you and I because you jump in the car and you're there 30 miles an hour, you're there an hour. But to spend a couple of days walking is what's going to take place here. So in that city of Caesarea... Uh, How many of you guys have been there with us? Yeah, it's amazing. I'm kind of sad because of the whole pandemic and all. I just feel like I may have been to Israel for my last time. It kind of breaks my heart. But I love it when we go to Caesarea, and I can smell it when I think about it. It's right on the ocean. It's remarkable. And Caesarea was built by Herod the Great. Incredible builder, and he started about 23, 26 BC. And in 10 to 12 years, he finished this city. This city is 200, they debate, 236 to 256 acres inside. So imagine an ancient city, 2,000 years old, 236 acres inside the wall. Jericho was 8 to 10 acres inside the wall. Jerusalem, under David and Solomon, spread to about 37 acres. Jerusalem today, the old city, somewhere, they say 100 to 120 acres. Now, this is back 2,000 years, Caesarea Maritima, built by Herod the Great, 235 acres inside of a wall. It was where Pilate stayed, whoever the prefect was, The Roman authority through Judea and the area stayed at Caesarea. That's where they lived. There were theaters there, and they found that one we visit. That's the half of a circle. Um, The amphitheaters, they're all the way around. Um, There's a Colosseum there where they had sports uh, and so forth, a hippodrome that seated 30,000 people. People, uh, they built a aqueduct that comes from the mountains, Carmel, and so forth, and it, it comes—I forget how many miles—and and you know they had to build that so there was continual pitch in one direction, so the water would run. And in some of those places, almost a quarter of a mile, they had to bore through rock, the side of a mountain, to get to the other side, so it was still dropping. And you can go see that aqueduct, we all, we, we always do, and you, this is just incredible. It came to the city. They had water year-round. They had a sewer system that was just incredible under the city, and it was built so that at high tide or a storm, if high tide came in, it automatically flushed out the sewer system and cleaned it out. He built a harbor there because Alexandria in Egypt was one of the main harbors in that world. And he wanted it to, in Athens, he wa- he wanted it to be, you know, e- equal to those great harbors. So he had to build out a quarter of a mile. They had to, had to build out these, you know, pathways out into the ocean. And again, divers pouring underwater concrete that they had invented in the Roman in that era and they, they built forms underwater and poured underwater concrete and built up these, you know, these breakers so that ships could come in without getting dashed on the the rocks and so forth, these breakways. And you can still see parts of that today when you go there. And it's just this incredible, incredible city. And a man named Cornelius is there now. We don't know. He may be of the lineage of a Cornelius um, who, who lived 82 years before Christ, uh, Cornelius Felix, I always forget his last name, forgive me, but he freed, I forget how many thousand slaves. So a lot of those slaves then took the name Cornelius in their lineage. We don't know for sure. All we know about him is sitting right here. But there's this man, Cornelius. He's a centurion, it tells us. Centurion was over 80 to 100 men. He's part of an Italian band, an Italian cohort. You had the legate, who was in charge of a legion, which was 5,500 to 6,000 men, a legion, and then you had 10 cohorts in a legion so there were approximately 600 men in a legion or a cohort and then you had inside the cohort centuries were centurions the the tribune ruled over he was a second in command with a legion under the legate and he would oversee thousands And then the cohort was down to about a thousand inside the cohort. You had then the centuries, a hundred men, 80 to a hundred men. And it seems that this man, Cornelius, is a centurion in the Italian band. They were the ones most respected in the Roman Empire because of their loyalty to Caesar and to Rome. And it seems that he's been stationed there for a long time. The Jewish community knows him. We're going to read about everybody there knows him. And he's there. And the centurions we meet in scripture are fairly, fairly remarkable. There's no doubt that Cornelius had heard about Jesus. You remember Capernaum, which is the northern end, fairly close to Caesarea, a centurion there had sent to Jesus to come and heal his servant. And the people there said, he's built us a synagogue. This centurion, you know, he's faithful to our country. Luke chapter 7, if you want to read it. And Jesus of Colt, he healed this centurion's servant. He spoke the word. That travels among soldiers. We know there was a centurion at the cross when Christ died. He was there for three hours of darkness... He was there when the earthquake shook, the sun comes back, and he said, truly, this was the Son of God. So you had the guard at the tomb when Christ rose and an angel came, rolled back the stone. These kinds of things spread amongst the ranks and the soldiers, and we're 10 to 12 years after the resurrection here, when we meet Cornelius. And no doubt he was tired of the Greek and the Roman pantheon. All of their and, and Caesarea had temples to almost every single god, and right where you came in the harbor was the biggest temple to Caesar Augustus. That's why he named it Caesarea, and Caesar worship had begun. And there's a temple there to Caesar Augustus and no doubt Herod is hoping for favor back in Rome, Im- impressing the Caesar with his, his building. And, and here in the middle of this, we have this Roman who evidently is tired of all of these other things. Marriages were falling apart. The Roman Republic, ba- they bragged, begged, uh, bragged. The first 150 to 200 years, not a single divorce in the Roman Republic. By this time, Gibbons tells us the decline of all the Roman Empire, marriages were hardly lasting, immorality was rampant. He said uh, the, the republic that once was strong was falling apart because all people cared about was the bread at the circus, you know, the Colosseum. All they cared about was sexual pleasure. All they cared about was the games. All the, He goes through these things you think, this guy was reading the news today when he wrote that and here in the middle is a centurion a, a noble character no doubt he's heard about Jesus because when Peter preaches to him I think over around verse 34 he says I'm sure you know this when he's talking to him about the resurrection and he set his heart towards God he's a man of prayer and he's in this Roman capital of Caesarea Remarkably, he's called Cornelius, he is a centurion, and he's of the band, the cohort called the Italian band. Remarkable, that was a qualified group of men, and he's been there in Caesarea for a decent amount of time. It tells us here, the word of God, the Holy Spirit through Luke, he was a devout man, He's a monotheist, we're going to see that. One that feared God, this is the God of the Jews. He's not born again, but he's come in contact with the one true God. Feared God, notice this, with all his house. I know some of us today wish all our house feared God. And he gave much alms to the people, taking care of the Jews, their needs, giving many alms to them, those that were less fortunate. That's what the alms were for. And he prayed to God always. So he didn't know Jesus. He didn't know what we know. But it says he prayed to God always. The word always there means during the day, whatever was going on, wherever he was doing, driving in traffic, you know, whatever he's doing, he prays to God always. I wish I could learn that. Sometimes I'm in situations where I should be praying instead of griping or at least griping to God about what I'm griping about. This is a man who prays always, it says, and he saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour, it tells us. That's three in the afternoon. It's the time of the evening sacrifice. And because of his affinity to the God of the Jews, he's probably praying at that time, he saw in a vision, evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming to him and saying unto him, Cornelius, <laughs> and when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. God remembers them. God hears them. What is he praying for? But his prayers rise, it tells us here. And God is taking notice to the point that heaven knows his name. The angel shows up and says, Cornelius, sent from God. Heaven knows this guy's name. Remarkable. As he knows yours. And... Uh, He's afraid. He knows it's a divine encounter. He calls him Lord, kurios, not thinking how we would think, of course, but he calls him Lord. He understands this is something supernatural. And he was afraid when he saw the angel, as probably most people are when they see angels. He said, what is it, Lord? He said, your prayers, your alms, they've come up before God from memorial. Now, send men to Joppa. And call for one Simon, whose name is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the seaside. Now this is remarkable. Um, over in chapter nine, of Paul's conversion, said the Lord said unto him, Arise. Go into a street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. He's speaking to Ananias. For behold, he's there, he's praying. Here he says to Cornelius, Send men to Joppa, look for one Simon, whose name is Peter. He's lodging with one Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the seaside. In both of these places, God knows the address. He knows the address. He knows what's going on in the house. And i got news for you. He knows your address, and he knows what's going on inside of your house, too. You know, that's important for us to know, because sometimes we think when we're alone, nobody knows what's going on. Remember David, after he sinned, he said, Before thee and thee only have I sinned, and I've done this great evil in thy sight. God is very specific here. There's angels involved, there's visions involved, there's addresses involved. Ananias is sent to a specific address. God knows what street it's on and tells him what street to go. Here, he says to Cornelius, he said, you need to send some of your men down to Joppa, 30 miles. When they get there, you're looking for someone called Simon, whose name is Peter, You'll be able to smell your way there because he's in the tanner's house, but it's the tanner that's by the ocean. Remarkable. Go there, he says, and there you'll find this Simon. It says, you know, and look. Peter's got to do this because Peter's the one that's going to come back to Jerusalem and say, for as much then as God gave them, the Gentiles, the like gift as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? And when they heard, then they held her peace. So Peter's the one now that God's going to bring the gospel, you use the gospel to the Gentiles, to the Gentile world, to Caesarea, that from there the whole world is touched from there. Um, Remarkable, there's a prejudice between Jews and Gentiles that's unimaginable. Whatever prejudice we know, whatever prejudice we've experienced is not to be compared to the prejudice between Jews and Gentiles. They called them, Jews didn't have curse words, so they called them goyim. They were dogs. The Jews believed that Gentiles were fuel for the fires of hell. The, The Talmud told Jewish women and Jewish men, you couldn't help a Gentile woman if she was in the throes of childbirth because you were bringing a Gentile into the world. And Gentiles were better off dead. The prejudice was unbelievable. In the the temple in Jerusalem at this point, when you came there, and it was about twelve acres around this time, you had the court of the Gentiles, the largest court there that the Jews desecrated, where they sold animals, they had money changers, they could care less, was supposed to be a place where the Gentiles could come. You had the smaller court, then the court of the women, then the smaller court, the court of the men, called the court of Israel the smaller court, the court of the priest, and then the highest place, the temple itself, where only the the line of Aaron, the priest, would enter in there. But between the, the court of the Gentiles and the court of women, there was a wall. It was four to five foot tall, and it said on it, in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, so there would be no mistakes, that any Gentile that passed that wall and entered into the court of women would do that at the stake of his life. The death penalty was then required. In fact, Paul says this, But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who were sometimes afar off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. And Peter had those prejudices. And God is taking him first to the house of Simon the Tanner. Now he's going to give him this direction. We're going to see how he gets to Peter coming up here. But he gets to Cornelius first because it's going to be from there that it spreads to the Gentile world. And when we watch Saul, Paul, remarkable to see how he reaches the world. So he says here, he says, send men now to Joppa. Simon the Tanner, Peter is there. He lodges with one Simon the Tanner whose house is by the seaside, and he shall tell thee what thou oughtest, what's necessary, literally. He's going to tell you what's necessary to do. And, of course, that's to believe on the Lord Jesus. That's the doing. And when the angel which spake to Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants... And a devout soldier, he had affected his whole family, evidently the soldier is a monotheist from being around Cornelius, two of his oikamon, those who were household servants, which is a different word than doulos, than slaves. These were his servants. And a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. And when he had declared... Here's our word, exegesis. Jesus declared God on Sunday morning, exegeted him. When he had exegeted these things unto them, he opened them up, brought them in the open, made them clear. Then he sent them then to Joppa. So they are on their way to Joppa. Now, on the morrow, the next day, it's going to take them two or three days to get there. And it says... On the morrow in the morning, as they went on their journey and drew nigh to the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour, and probably to get some fresh air from being down in uh, Simon the Tanner's uh, residence. And up on the roof, they all had outside stairways, and, you know, Jesus said, if you're on the rooftop, don't come down and get your garment; just take off. Because they would go up, particularly in this area, you go up on the roof and you have a Mediterranean breeze and it's beautiful in Israel today. In the old city you go in you see all these rooftops everywhere. People sit up there, they barbecue up there. Here, Peter goes up on the rooftop. And uh, he's, he's up there to pray. And this is around noon, the sixth hour, it tells us. And he became very hungry. I like that. Because sometimes when I pray, my mind wanders as well. He's uh, he's praying, and all of a sudden he's thinking about barbecue. You know how you do that? You get on your knees, you're praying, all of a sudden you're thinking, inspection's doing the car, and you think, wait a minute, how did my brain get from heaven to inspection on the car? Well, Peter's up there praying, and all of a sudden he's thinking, man, I could go for some lamb, some of those little lamb lollipops or something, you know he became very hungry. Now, by the way, this is God controlling this. God pulls the hunger switch because he's going to do something. You know, God can do that in the Old Testament. He puts his finger on Saul's bladder and he has to go into a cave to go to the bathroom, you know, and David's, of course, hiding in there. He controls the whole digestive deal. Here, he, he pulls the switch and Peter says, man, I'm hungry. I thought I was thinking about heaven. I want to eat. And he would have eaten, but while they made ready, I don't know if he yells down and says, Yo, it's noon, what's for lunch? While they were making ready, he fell into a trance. Our word there is ecstasis. In verse 3, we have Cornelius being visited by an angel now here in verse 10, we have a sovereign God reigning over everything, even when you're hungry. He, he has Peter fall into this trance, ecstasis. Somehow, all of a sudden, he is aware of heaven. He, he, and it means to step into a different realm. Interesting. So all of a sudden, he, he, he's in this consciousness. Look at verse 11, and he saw heaven opened. And a certain vessel descending unto him, as it had been a great sheet, knit at the four corners, and let down to the earth. It's the same word that's used sometimes in the New Testament for a sail, or in classical Greek, or a sail on a ship filled with air. He sees this huge thing, the four corners are tied together, and it's let down from heaven, I don't know what he's thinking. I hope there's falafel in there or something, you know. He sees this big thing coming down to the earth as he's in the trance. This vessel descends unto him, as it were, a great sheet knit at the four corners, let down to the earth, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air... And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord. You you can't say that, by the way. <laughs> you can say not so and you can say Lord, but you can't say not so, Lord. Uh, and actually the, the the it's a little emphatic, it's a but bo- not by any means, Lord, you know, there's a little more emphasis than just not so, Lord. And evidently this sheet, when it comes down from heaven, it says that all kinds of animals and creeping things on it, after the flood, God had said to Noah, every moving thing that liveth shall be meat to you. Even as the green herb, have I given you all things? So after the flood, there was no dietary law. They were out. The, they could eat lobster. You know, they could eat whatever, whatever you wanted. Bald eagle, whatever you wanted to eat. You know, there was no. But 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 then, as the Leviticus 11 comes, a dietary law. Any meat they were going to eat had to chew the cud, and had a cloven hoof. Those were the animals they were of meat. Of fish, it had to have fins and scales. Uh, of bugs, it, it had to have elbows in their feet and jump, the the locusts. Um, and of birds, they they had to be domesticated. They couldn't eat birds of prey. They couldn't eat vultures. They couldn't eat seagulls. You know, so there was four basic categories. But now Peter sees this this thing come down from heaven and it opens up and it says, there's all manner of four footed beasts of the earth. There's wild hogs, you know, there there's deer, there's, there's all kinds of animals. Evidently, I'm probably not deer, probably no clean animals at all. And, uh, and he's told to kill and eat. It's kind of interesting. God's breaking through his prejudice here. Cause he say, not so Lord in my entire life. I've never eaten anything that's not kosher. This is amazing. This is Peter. In my entire life I have never eaten anything unclean. That's a pretty remarkable standard for this man Peter. Sometimes we wouldn't think to attach that to him, but God's trying to get him across these lines of prejudice. It's funny Sandy Adams who passed this, he pastors the Calvary Chapel down in Atlanta in Georgia Stone Mountain and uh, he's a good old Baptist boy. got saved out of the Baptist church. Well, he was saved, but he, he, he made his graduation from the Baptist church, and he got, ended up becoming a Calvary pastor. His brother's still a Baptist pastor. And uh, he said, it was hard for me, he said, because I was a Baptist. He said, in had a tie and a suit and very, you know, collected and presented properly. And he said, all of a sudden, I got around these Calvary guys and he said I'm thinking what is this what tribe am I getting involved in you know and- and he said, one day I was just sitting there, and I was thinking, and he said, I saw this big Hawaiian shirt come down from heaven, and it opened up, and there were all these guys with beards and long hair, and Lord said, don't you call that common anymore, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and he talked about the prejudices he had to get over, and here's, I love Sandy, in fact, he just taught this on the west coast, he, he taught chapter 10, but didn't, I said, Sandy, you didn't put the Hawaiian shirt story in there, he was making some other points, but This comes down from heaven with all of these creatures normally that the Jews would never eat. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. He's choosing tradition over the word of god and look jesus had said to them it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man because that goes into the stomach it comes out in the toilet it's what proceeds from the heart that defiles a man adultery murder all of these things so the lord had laid the groundwork for this in fact at the end before before his ascension he said go into all the world and preach the gospel, not just Judea. So the groundwork had been laid for these things, and now this voice is saying to Peter, this is the Lord, kill and eat. Not so, Lord, I've never eaten anything that's not kosher or unclean. And and the Lord he doesn't say, you know, Luke 7. Go back to Luke 7 read Luke 7, but... He says, I've never eaten anything unclean. And the voice spoke unto him again the second time and said, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. Again, Matthew 7, Mark 7, you can read through and look at it. This was done thrice. Now the Lord remembers he's got to do everything with Peter three times. This was done thrice. And the vessel was received up again into heaven. Now I wonder if Peter said, you know, three times at like Gethsemane he had to be awakened three times, three times before the rooster crowed. he denies the Lord. Here, three times he's told this with food. And then when he's in Antioch and Paul's there, the letter to the Galatians, Paul said, We're in Antioch. And Peter was there hanging out, eating with the Gentiles, Italian sausage, you know, brisket, and all the... And he said, then certain men came from James in Jerusalem, and Peter withdrew himself, was no longer eating with the Gentiles. This is after this. Isn't that encouraging? That God can make an apostle, not a apostle, an apostle out of somebody this stubborn. It, it's just encouraging to me because I think, Lord, there's so many areas of my life I am still so thick and so unyielding and so have so many, pre, you know, I, I I have idea, the ideas that are predisposed, and, and and he's so faithful. He's so faithful. You know, come on, Peter. You remember it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles man. Remember when I let the sheets down from heaven? Now you're doing this in Galatia. You're just, you know, it's so easy. But he's the Lord. Also saw this guy's going to be the rock of the church, and he was in so many ways as time went on. Uh, So he says what God has cleansed, don't call that common. Three times this was done. It doesn't tell us, but it seems like he probably said not so, Lord, three times. And the vessel was then received up again into heaven. Now look, verse 17. Now while Peter doubted in himself what the vision he had seen should mean, now it means he's troubling. He's grappling. He's trying to figure out, why did Lord why did you do this? What does this mean? You know, what is this all about? Behold the men which were sent from Cornelius. Isn't God's timing really kind of pretty remarkable? And he had to do all this on foot. Behold the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. They they smelled their way there, I'm sure. Uh, it's so interesting to look at this, because just as Peter's wrestling, what does this mean? Now these guys stand at the gate, and they called and they asked whether Simon, which is surnamed Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter thought on the vision, the Holy Spirit said unto him, Behold, Peter, you've got to think about this. Three men, And it's an imperative error. Peter, you need to think. There's three men that are seeking you. Arise, therefore, get thee down and go with them. Look what he says. Doubting nothing, for I have sent them. So it's so interesting. Peter's going to go with them back to Caesarea. But the timing of this, as Peter's troubled. You know, when God does something in our life... He knows how we're going to respond. And there's some things that are troubling that we have to work through. Or how do I deal with this? And he doesn't just let that to us. He still enters in. He doesn't, he doesn't give us something and then we wrestle with it and don't understand. He goes, oh, raspberries, I'm going to have to give this to the guy next door or something. No, he knows ahead of time. He knows how we're going to react. He knows what we're going to wrestle with. But he knows that we're the one. And as Peter's wrestling with this vision, as most people do if they have visions, what does this mean? People come up and ask me all the time about dreams. I say, I don't know. I don't interpret dreams. You know, go see Jerry. Uh, you, you, you know. Uh, and I've had people come up and say, "We, I had a dream, and I saw you were on the way to Israel. and The plane blew up, and everybody got killed. And oh, gee, thanks. I appreciate that as we're getting ready to go. And I would just say I don't receive that because the, the Bible says the gift of prophecies to edify the church, and I don't feel real edified right now with your, pe- pe- you know, pizza pepperoni pizza dream here. You should not walk, knock some of that off before you go to bed. It, the timing is perfect here. As Peter's scratching his head, he's thinking about this. All of a sudden, he hears these three men. They're here seeking you, Peter. So. He comes down, arise therefore, and get thee down. The ho-. And this is the Holy Spirit speaking to him. Hey, there's three guys looking for you. Isn't is so amazing the Holy Spirit can be that clear? Look, if there's something in my own life, you know, we seem so close to the end. I mean, at 71, I'm close to the end either way. But, you know, you, you know, I'm just thinking, Lord, I, I want to know you better than I ever have. I, I want to know the voice of your Holy Spirit when you speak to me. I mean, I normally do. If I hear something strange, it doesn't line up with Scripture. I know that's not you. But I want to know, Lord, if you're directing me. I want to know when you're saying something to me. And I, And I look at this. The Holy Spirit says, hey, there's three guys down there waiting for you. Go on down. I don't want you doubting about this, because I've sent them. The Holy Spirit says, I've sent them to you. Then Peter went down to the men which were sent to him from Cornelius, and he said, Behold, I am he whom you seek. What is the cause whereof you are come? Why are you here? And they said, Cornelius, The centurion, notice their opinion, he is a just man, one that feareth God, and of good reputation among all the nation of the Jews. So he had to have been there for a while. He was warned from God by a holy angel to send for thee into his house and to hear the words, remata, the rhema of thee, the door is opening, the walls are falling down, this centurion has sent for you. He's, he's godly, he 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 believes there's one God, he's finding his way through your religion, he does alms, he gives to the Jewish people, he's cared about them, and he sent us to get you. An angel from God came to him and said that you would come. And Peter's got to be thinking I'm going to step into this, and James and John and the rest of them are never going to give me any peace. You know, they're going to say, "Oh, it's you know, cut off another ear." You know, he, 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 This open door is there, but there's still walls that have to come down. Look, in in our life, in my life, in your life, what prejudices are there in our lives that still need to come down? Peter's a believer. Peter spent 40 days with the risen Christ. Peter was filled on Pentecost. He was filled again with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 4, 31. Peter is a spirit filled, born again man that is still dealing with prejudices. So sad. So sad. And the world's covered with it, by the way. What are the prejudices in your personal life that you still need to deal with as a Christian man or a Christian woman? Because on the other side of that, there may be some political or civil leader or military leader that doesn't know God, that's wrestling in their heart, though no one may know about that, and it's going to be brought in. You know, I I think about our governor, I think about our mayor, I think about, and, and we can so easily, because of their moral position or where they stand on things and we, we don't agree. you, know, the, you know, Understand that God sent his son for them as well. That he so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever... That's how I get it. I wanted whosoever to last till I get saved, but now whosoever don't count anymore. Right? That whosoever would believe. would not perish but have everlasting life. And there's this picture here, you know, Peter's crossing these lines from Jew to Gentile because the Jerusalem church is not going to accept it if Paul talks about it. It has to be Peter. And the book of Acts is kind of done with him after this situation of the house of Cornelius. And then Saul of Tarsus takes over the book and we follow him through his journeys for the rest of the book of Acts. But this is where we're sitting here tonight Because of these guys that came from Caesarea to Joppa. And because they're saying to Peter, you need to come with us. Because an angel from God came and talked to our boss, the centurion. He's a good man. That's why we're here tonight. If that hadn't happened, this would still be a Jewish religion. Now, for the Jews, it's a wonderful thing, you know, I mean, to find their Messiah. A good friend of mine who's going home to be with the Lord, Victor Smadja, one of the last times we were there, Josh and I, I had a privilege to teach at Israeli College of the Bible, and then for Shabbat we went down to Victor Smadja's house, Samuel Smadja's father. Victor was there, and he said the prayer over Shabbat meal. They broke the bread. They talked about the wine. And he was saying all this in Hebrew, saying the blessings. And the guy sitting next to me, Moshe, Moses, who was not a believer, kept saying, Joe, you should hear what he's saying. He's asking Jesus to do this. I said, you're not a believer. He said, I know, I know, but it's amazing. He said, just, you know, and and it was great. It was just a, a remarkable time to be there with them in that house and to partake, and that's where Christianity would have stayed if the doors hadn't opened up to the Gentiles. We were at a, uh, a facility, and Victor came to speak to us. He was born, he, when he came to Israel, say when he was 16, came to Israel before 1948 and was there when the nation began. And because he was born again, he appealed to the government to start a Messianic congregation. 1954, six years after they started, and the government just shook their heads and said, yeah, all right, go on, do it. You know, So on Prophet Street is the oldest Messianic fellowship in the country. I had the privilege to speak there on Saturday. You don't call church, you don't call Sunday. I spoke to the congregation on Shabbat. and. Uh, you know, so he is well known all through the country and he came, we were to Mushav to speak to us, and we had a decent sized group, and after he spoke he was doing questions and answers. And somebody said to him, When were you converted? He said, No. He said, You were converted. You're pagans. I was completed, not converted. He said, I always had the right God. I just didn't have all the information. He said, I was converted. I mean, I was completed. You were converted. And, and Peter here is completed. You know, his, his love for Messiah, his, his Jewish feelings, the, the depth of that. I mean, look, America, right, 200 some years. This is thousands of years of depth. And and his Jewish faith has come into the light. How precious. Now God is saying, I want you to go to the house of a Gentile. And I want you to do it, Peter, because they're going to need to hear in Jerusalem what took place. Because this goes into all the world. That's why we're sitting here this evening. We're children of Abraham by faith. Isn't it wonderful? And we can have lobster tail. It's just great. Thank you, Peter. And they say, The angel sent for thee to come to the house that we might hear the words. Now it's not Logos there, it's Rhema. That is, this, there's, a, there's specific words you're going to say to us. And he's going to talk to him about the resurrection. It's very specific, living words that you're going to say, oral, very specific. You're going to say, Then called he them in and lodged them. Look. Because let's not go to Lamar, you know, it's 30 miles. He calls these Gentiles into the house of Simon the Tanner, where he's already got to cross lines. I don't know if he asked Simon, but now you've got Gentiles, Simon Peter, there's there's Simon and his family, the Tanner. This is a combination that the world has not seen. Just a remarkable, remarkable scene. The boundaries that are being, claw, claw, you know, c- crossed, and he just calls them in. He says, "He says, come in." He says, "Call them in." I'm assuming that he asked Simon first. It was okay. He calls them in, and on the morrow, the next day, Peter went away with them, and it says. And certain brethren, other believers, from Joppa accompanied him. Now, it's going to tell us over in chapter 11, it says, And the Spirit bade me go with them, nothing doubting. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered into the man's house. So he's got six Jewish believers with him to bear testimony of what happens. So it isn't just Peter saying it, the rest of them are saying, No, we were there. And right in the middle of his sermon, the Lord interrupted him by pouring out the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles that were there, the same as he did on us is at the beginning, is what he's going to say when we get into chapter 11, talking to the church in Jerusalem. So we have this remarkable transition taking place. It's the most significant translation, transition in the book. Because it brings us in. It brings the Gentile world into the story, and God uses Peter to do it. He had the keys of the kingdom, as it were, and uh, the church in Jerusalem trusted him. So he would be the one to bring word back to Jerusalem that the gospel had gone to the Gentiles and that God had filled them with the Holy Spirit just the same as he had filled the Jewish believers with the Holy Spirit making no difference. It would be remarkable. But that's not till next week. I hope that we get raptured by then, so you can talk to all these people yourself. All the mistakes I make when I'm tired and can't even pronounce words anymore. Um, you can talk to these guys yourself. But if we're here next week, verse 24 is where we'll jump in. That they get on their way to go. And just a remarkable picture is brought before us. So tonight, um, God knows your address, right? He knows what's in your house, knows if there's a liquor cabinet, knows if there's pornographic movies. He knows if you're praying regularly during the day. He knows if you have children's Bibles for your kids. He knows if you have VeggieTales. He knows what's in your house and he knows your address. That should be a good thing. When we're having a bad day and we're going, oh, Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me. It's nice to know he knows our address. And he hears us when we pray. He tells us that. He knows the address on the other end when a connection has to be made. If he needs to involve angels, and I'm sure he has in our lives at times, though probably we don't realize it. Then he needs to speak to us by the Holy Spirit. He puts things together. Our paths have crossed because we're here. Look, you know, I think if I hadn't been saved, it wasn't for the blood of Jesus, I'd have never met my wife, none of my kids wasn't for the blood of Jesus. I'd have ne- never met Jerry or Trevor, friends I see sitting here. wasn't for the blood of Jesus. None of that would ever happen in my life. I think how remarkable for him to do that, bring things together, and now he knows my address. He knows everything about me. So I would take heart to that, that he knows you, and when you're having a bad day, when you're calling out to him, he hears. He knows where you are. I would say this. He knows our address because we're his children. He loves us. If he knew, he knew the address of, a, of an unbelieving Roman centurion here, he knows ours. And if he heard his prayer, he hears our prayers. And when he spoke to Peter about things he may speak to us about, and, and, and I think that's very important, What are there prejudices in our lives? Certainly there shouldn't be in the church of Jesus Christ. Really. Again. One guy that, that's come and sat here and came up to me afterwards and said, I, I don't believe what you're saying, but I'm just so tired of the world. Everybody hates each other. Everything, Everybody's fighting. He said, this is the only place I can come and sit where everybody believes the same thing and does the same stuff. And I shared the gospel. He said, I kind of knew you were going to say that, but I hope he keeps coming. He just said there's something here. Jesus said that. By the love we have, one for another, all men would know we're his disciples. He senses that. So prejudice has got to go. Prejudice has got to go, and some of them can be here. You know, the wrong God hasn't designed them. Look, economic, cultural, racial. God is not colorblind. Will anybody tell you you need to be colorblind? Because around his throne in heaven, in Revelation chapter 5, they're from every kindred, every race, every tongue. It's a glory to him. It's his genius that we have different backgrounds and different traditions, and we can all sit together and worship the same God. And on the, the scales, on the balances, the most important thing in our life outweighs all of those other things. Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing we have in common. And Peter's going to realize that in the house of Cornelius. And if he could step across some of those things he stepped across. Look, I'm not telling you what to do, but listen to me. (laughs) You know, when you're praying and fellowshipping with the Lord, you can say, Lord, show me that. Is there prejudices in my life? Are there things that I need to deal with? How do I do it? Tell me, Lord, show me. He might tell you to go to somebody's house you don't want to go to, but, you know, how do I deal with this, Lord? Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for these things as we look into them, Lord, to, to take this in some ways as a schematic and overlay it onto our lives today and the culture we're in today and the news we're surrounded with today and these last hours of human history you've called us to, Lord. Help us learn. Help us yield, Lord. Help us be flexible, Lord. Help us not to say not so, Lord, but to say what do you want, Lord? Send me. Speak to me. Direct me. Shepherd me my rear guard, my shield, and my buckler. Lord, Your name is as ointment poured forth, Lord Jesus, in my life. So lead us, Lord. We thank you. Pour out your Holy Spirit, Lord, as we gather here. Lord, fill us. Send us out contagious into a lost world, Lord. And uh, we ask that in Jesus' name. We, we look at this hour of human history. Lord, we don't know. there's changed so much everything in the last two years. We don't know what will happen in the next two years. But we know you haven't changed. We know you're still saving people by multitudes. And Lord, we know it's going to be to your praise and your glory when we all stand around your throne. Lord, we think on the other side of a trumpet blast, everything's better, fixed, whole. We're looking forward to that, Lord. You know that, Lord Jesus. You've given us that blessed hope. Use us while we're here, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen.